Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, Princeton University professor and prolific author Imani Perry. In 2018, her books, Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, and May We Forever Stand, A History of the Black National Anthem, were published respectively by Beacon Press and the University of North Carolina Press. Imani Perry was intrigued by the enduring legacy of Lift Every Voice and Sing, the song known as the Negro or Black National Anthem. And she has long been fascinated by the life and work of Lorraine Hansberry, author of the groundbreaking play A Raisin in the Sun. So I asked Imani Perry why she chose to write an experimental, memoir-like biography of Lorraine Hansberry. I wanted to write a book that was like a memoir in the sense that, you know, when someone writes a memoir, they they sort of identify important themes or threads of their life, and you get a sense of their character, their priorities, their emotional life, and um, as opposed to, you know, more conventional biographies really go step by step through every detail. So I wanted to capture her intellectual life, her passions, her political commitments, her artistic commitments, her struggles in the last couple of years of her life um, as she was dying, and then her complex interior life, um, her both her loneliness and these really extraordinary, deep, meaningful relationships with other people. So, so it's roughly chronological, but it's also thematic, sort of going through certain aspects of who she was in each chapter. And you're in there as well. I am in there as well. Um, I start the book in some ways talking about my relationship with Lorraine and why she is so compelling to me, um, which was a, a bit of a risk. But what I found is that it, it resonates with readers because so many people feel so connected to her. There's something about her um, her unapologetic political stridency and her the impassioned and kind of joyful and playful um, and also really profound character that she had that makes people feel deeply connected. So everybody feels like Lorraine is their inspiration or their muse or, or, or them or they're in love with her, like everybody. And so I do think there's a way in which sort of opening up my own sense of inspiration from her actually um, wound up being a device that lets readers connect with her, which I'm grateful for because that's part was part of the goal. For people who don't know, who is Lorraine Hansberry? Lorraine Hansberry is most widely known as the author of A Raisin in the Sun, uh, which uh, premiered on Broadway 60 years ago, the first play by a black woman to appear on Broadway. Um, She was the youngest winner of the Drama Critics Circle Award. Um, So with this first play that she really had ever written, she was sort of cast almost immediately into one of the most powerful roles in American theater. Um, And her play is, I'm pretty confident, the most widely produced play by a black playwright in American history. And there have been three film versions of it. And of course, she also has a whole other body of work and this complex life. But most people know A Raisin in the Sun, even if they don't know 
Lorraine Hansberry. And so part of the story was sort of telling the beyond a raisin in the sun story of her life, which was extraordinary in many ways. What else made her such a compelling literary figure? One, she was a master of the ensemble form. So she understood how to put a variety of characters together and give you a deep sense of who they were, right? Their desires, their aspirations, their their identities, right? And then tease out these really sort of critical social justice and political issues while, without ever making it feel heavy-handed or overly didactic, right? And so she was a student of human beings. She was also a voracious intellectual, which I think plays a real significant role in her work. And she was an activist. And there's a way in which her sensitivity to struggles for social justice, I think, actually made their way into her artwork because although she was, you know, she was a socialist and she was very politically strident, she also understood the value of any step towards social justice. And so she was sensitive to what made people reach for more. Um, and that sort of finds its way in her work, um, not through ideal characters, through complex characters, through flawed characters. Um, and in that sense, she was very influenced by Irish playwrights. Intellectually, she was influenced by her mentors, W.E.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes, Paul Robeson. Um, so she really is kind of rooted in multiple traditions, and it all comes through beautifully in her work. And she also was uh, good friends with James Baldwin. She was very close friends with James Baldwin. And their letters are so moving because you see a kind of vulnerable Baldwin in them where he's asking for her assistance, wants her to read things for him. And this is something a lot of their friends um, noted. They were down home with each other in the sense that they really relaxed and they entered a, a kind of very kind of organic black cultural space. And if you listen to their both of their interviews, right, they have this sort of like highbrow elocution. They're very erudite and they do that performance that lots of people did in the mid 20th century. And then when they were together, they let loose. But they also had this amazing intellectual companionship. And so if you read their work together, you can see they, they repeat characters from one another. Mm. They share so many ideas. You could see them um, reading the same authors and coming to different conclusions. And cost. And so I think, you know, Baldwin is this huge figure in American letters. And part of my intention was to show, one, that, you know, Baldwin emerges in part because he's in community with other people. And one of those people who was incredibly significant for him was Lorraine Hansberry. And so she needs to be recognized for that influence on his life and work. You mentioned people like yes. Du Bois and, and Robeson. Who else influenced her, particularly on the family, you know, the personal side? Well, certainly her uncle, William Leo Hansberry, who was a professor at Howard University and really... Um, we can talk about him as the father of African studies. He taught some of the leaders of African independence movements. One of the things people don't often recognize is that historically black colleges are really international sites for black political organizing and imagination. And, and Hansberry, William Leo Hansberry was an important figure for that. He taught Namdi Azikiwe, for example, was the first president of Nigeria. You know, so for Lorraine, um, we can see in a character like Joseph Asagai in A Raisin in the Sun, who, who was her favorite character. I mean, people often think Benita was her favorite character because that was like her. But actually, Joseph Asagai was her favorite character. Really? Yeah, and that was certain. She talked about 
that idea coming from her her uncle's students, for example. So she was an internationalist. She was interested in um, questions of liberation and justice broadly, and that definitely was a product of his influence. And what about her father? So Carl Hansberry has this really interesting influence for Lorraine because um, she described him as a patriot. He was a Republican even after most black folks had left the Republican Party. <laughs> uh, he was a capitalist, and he was a brilliant man. And he was known as the Kitchenette King in Chicago because he was a real estate mogul. And Lorraine very early sort of distinguished herself politically from her father. Lorraine was on the far left. She identified strongly with poor and working class people. She was not someone who would identify as a patriot and certainly not as a capitalist. But he loomed large in her life. And his work was always ultimately for his people, black people. And even though she disagreed with his approach, she shared that sense of commitment. And so the theme of like of fathers and fatherhood and paternal legacies, it's all through her work. And you can see she's constantly grappling um, with his legacy. As you mentioned the kitchenette. Oh, yes. So Carl Leo Hansberry, Lorraine's father, was known for buying apartment buildings that had three-story apartments and cutting them up to create nine apartments out of three. And so each floor would have three apartments, and he would create a small kitchen in each of the units. Now, he did this because Chicago was so intensely segregated, and the vast majority of the city was covered by what were called racially restrictive covenants, which were basically land agreements that said, we're not going to let black people move here. Um, and so when the migrants were coming from the South, there was nowhere for people to live. So he created these very small units uh, in order to accommodate really the thousands, I mean, the throngs of people coming from the Deep South. Now, they were not ideal residences. So there's a kind of, it's a complicated legacy because while he performed an essential service, you know, these were really uh, cramped and oftentimes deeply uncomfortable places to live. So when... Lorraine chose to have the family in a raisin in the sun live in a kitchenette. There's a real sort of significant choice being made there because she decides to center the families who live in the kitchenette, unlike her own family, which own the kitchenettes. And that was one of the signs of her real identification with working class people and her sense that poor and working class black people in Chicago were really the center of the black community. And she wanted to center um, those folks in the work. Have there been other biographies of Lorraine Hansberry? Uh, there was one in the 1980s. One of the reasons, though, there haven't been many uh, is because it's only recently that we've had sort of access to her full or almost full archive. Her papers are available at the Schomburg Center for Research in New York, and so there are more coming, and they are coming from scholars of theater so they're going to have a lot of sort of material that mine doesn't really cover because I look at her as a kind of intellectual artist but not so much in terms of the sort of history of theater and also there's new evidence and research coming out all the time so one of the things that's been really exciting is that I've actually been contacted by lots of people who knew her after the book came out. And people are giving me information, and I'm, I'm sending it to other people who are writing her back because my project is done. But, um, yeah, but it's exciting. Yeah, I it's would long past it would due. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was there a restriction on her papers? Yes. 
What was the restriction? I don't know, and I so I would defer to the executor of her estate, but I do think part of it is that it's only in the last couple of years that people have begun to talk about Lorraine's sexuality and her identity as a lesbian, and I say that very explicitly because that is how she identified herself, right? She identified herself as a lesbian and as a feminist and, and as a socialist. Those were like the identities that were really important to her and something of a black nationalist. Um, so until my book, I don't think anybody had ever written about her lesbian-themed writing, some of which had been published under a pseudonym. Um, her writing has been meticulously maintained by the estate, but I think that they were waiting to share that work until it seemed like the society was at a place where it could be fully appreciated. And I say it that way because I feel like some of the criticism has been to suggest, well, why did they keep this secret for so long? But on the other hand, there are other writers for whom that part of their life was destroyed. The papers were burned or kept secret. This work was meticulously maintained, all in the same file. Mm. <laughs> and I think that was her decision, and I also think that was her executor's decision. It was very deliberate, and so I appreciate that. And, and it, it doesn't surprise me that they would exercise that degree of care because, you know, it's taken a long time for the society to even begin to transform. And in some ways, we're going backwards now. So, you know, that protectiveness I get. So I was very appreciative that they allowed me to use so much of the material, especially the quotations from her personal letters and her personal writings, things that were unpublished. I mean, that was really huge for me. Uh, journals? Journals um, or fully complete stories, novels, plays, mm -hmm. but that just have never been published. Mm -hmm. So to be able to quote from them things that hadn't been published, that was really important because I wanted to write about work that my reader wouldn't necessarily have access to. So I had to be able to quote it in order to really give a good sense of the work. So, yeah. When you were thinking about writing a book about Lorraine, yeah. and you had to sell this idea to your either agent or publisher or both, yeah. how did you do that? It's so funny. One of my friends says, because my first book was about hip-hop, and she was like, you're still so hip-hop. Because let me tell you how. <laughs> the way I did it was this. <laughs> I wrote the press an email. And I said, I want to write this book about Lorraine Hansberry. And they were like, okay. I did not have an agent. I didn't go through any formal channels. And they were like, what do you want to do? And I kind of wrote another long email. And they were like, okay. So, <laughs> so really? Yeah. Now, I had talked to folks at Beacon over many years about, I knew I wanted to eventually write a book with them. I really loved what they had done, publishing Baldwin and Martin Luther King and, you know, Cornell West. And so I liked their approach to kind of a creative trade press that had a lot of uh, kind of progressive political uh, work. And so it wasn't like it was totally cold, but it was a very unconventional <laughs> pathway. And the great thing about working with Beacon is that unlike a really large press, they let me write an experimental biography. There weren't the same kind of... Um, pressures to fit into a particular style mm -hmm. and a particular section of the bookstore, <laughs> right? Which I know, like, that's a big issue. Like, it where is. do you put it in yeah. a bookstore, right? So it was, a, yeah, it was a great experience, but it was not a traditional writing experience. <laughs> <laughs> so we say experimental, but what does that actually mean? Yeah, well, so, for example, when I would read her letters, there would be little turns of phrase, and I'd be like, oh, she's talking about Hemingway right here, right? And I keep saying this, but um, I read a lot of the same stuff as the rain. So I felt like 
I could move between the kind of emotional, personal work and the kind of intellectual work, which in her her personal life, like so you talk to some of her friends and they're like, to this day, they kind of roll their eyes like, oh, she could never get out of her head. Like she was intensely intellectual. So there's this way in which ideas and emotions and desire and creativity are all working at once. And I felt like that's something I could access because of some of the similarities in the way I think to her. And so biographies tend to sort of move pretty systematically through someone's life. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of moving from the inside out all the time as opposed to from the beginning to the end, even though I had to make it roughly chronological. So readers felt like they were going somewhere. But I was always kind of dancing between the inside and the outside and the friends and the loneliness and serious intellectual and the serious artist, all of that kind of mixture. So I guess that's what I mean about experimental. Not that no one had done it before, but as someone who loves biography, I wasn't accustomed to reading biographies in the form that I knew I was going to write. Who was your inspiration in terms of your own approach to this story? Well, um, my totally sincere answer will sound a little odd probably, but Thelonious Monk, because... When I listen to him, I always think about how he's constantly working on meditations on a theme. So he will sort of stay with a single composition and sort of look at it in different... And I sort of feel like the book is me repeating themes, but looking at them from different angles, chapter to chapter. Hmm. But in terms of biographies, many years ago, someone asked me if you could write a biography about anyone. This, I think I was in my 20s. Who would it be? And then I said... Um, uh, Sylvester, the disco <laughs> the singer. king. Yeah, the singer. <laughs> and I love music biographies. That's probably like my favorite genre of biography. And he said, oh, someone's already done that. So I bought it and I read it and I just, and I kept saying, oh, gosh, this is so good. Like who wrote this? And I flipped to the front because I, ha- I didn't pay attention to who wrote it. I just started reading. And it was someone who had actually taught me. And the reason I loved it is because it had this real serious scholarly depth But it also had all of the kind of play and pathos of Sylvester's life. And so I guess that's the biography that helped me understand that I could do something artistic and creative without giving up the fact that I am an intellectual. (laughs) <laughs> right? I mean, I don't have to pretend that I'm not that. And so right. so that, that book was really uh, impactful. Who wrote me. it? Uh, Joshua Gamson. Sorry okay. to say that. Yeah. And I, after I read it, I wrote him a note and I said, I'm so sorry I didn't come to class that much <laughs> in college, <laughs> but this book was amazing. <laughs> Were there any other books that, that touched you um, and inspired you? You know, so someone who grew up listening to Nina Simone very intensely and so f- being sort of approached this project knowing what Nina Simone's sort of political energy was. And so when I wrote about their relationship, and it's actually, it's interesting, um, people always write about Hansberry as Nina Simone's sort of mentor and teacher politically. But one of the questions I had was, well, but wait, Nina Simone is a genius. This hat was what had to be a two-way street. And actually, Ilyasa Shabazz, one of um, Malcolm X's daughters, had written something about how, listen, this is not just Hansberry teaching Nina Simone. And so no, being able to go into that archive of her work, I could like trace the influence. So it was more sort of 
having read all of these people around her, their work and her work, that guided the project because I knew the sort of priorities and their commitments. And so, yeah. 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 You have a biography of the Negro National Anthem. I do. So That's, that is it. <laughs> so how, <laughs> how do you write a biography of a song? A song. Yeah. So it was an interesting project because the conventional way of thinking about that song has been to trace the lives of its composer and songwriter, James Weldon Johnson and Rosamond Johnson, right, who were extraordinary Renaissance race men, of course. But I knew that I wanted to tell the story of the people's history of the song. For me, that was the real story, right? Why do black people decide to have an anthem before the United States has a national anthem? Wow. That doesn't happen until the 30s. Black people in, you know, in 19-teens are calling Lift Every Voice and sing the Negro National Anthem. So what I did is I, I told a story of black social and institutional life. And so I went to graduation programs, assemblies, school curricula, memoirs, teachers' archives. And I had thousands upon thousands of documents. If I had told the Johnson Brothers story... I would have had tens of documents from their archives and even in black newspapers with this amazing resource. And there were so many of them. And you see how much the sheet music's all for, but also this graduation program and not just when they sang the song, but what else did they sing and what did the kids wear and just this rich history. And also, irrespective of the politics when it was with respect to political organizations of the given institutions or the movements they were attacked do you have garveyite singing it and the naacp declaring it as its official song you have black nationalists singing it you know and the colored elks club right so there's there is something really amazing about the decision to choose a song that tells an epic story of black people on these shores and also socializes black people into a sense of commitment and struggle in the face of segregation and imperialism and all those, you know, colonialism. And it's monsters, a song yeah. that still survives. It still, it still, still survives. Today. <laughs> it's amazing. It is. It really yeah. is. Um, you talked about the reams of information that yes. you had available to you working on Lift Every Voice and Yeah. But you also had reams of information for Lorraine. So yes. as a writer, yeah. how do you... Go through it. Distill, yeah, go through it and distill it. Because your volumes are not 800, 700 um, pages. Right. Um, They're really... Kind of concise. Yeah, I write between 70,000 and 120,000. That's my page. That's your number. That's my range. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So how do you do that? Um, It's sort of an iterative process. So I do try to read through everything multiple times. And then... I do a lot of visual mapping, so I actually take sort of large pieces of poster board or pieces of paper and try to sort of think about connections, but also themes, because I think sort of repetition is really important for readers, for an idea to really become kind of, for you to sort of absorb the idea from the book. And so I I try to actually structure pretty tightly. Um, one of the things I keep saying about looking for Lorraine is the book is not a definitive text, it's an invitation. And I think that way about all my work. I want it to be in conversation with other works. I want people to disagree because I'm not a writer who wants to have the last word on a subject, but actually to engage on a subject. Then I don't feel 
the desire to write an 800-page book. But I love to read lots of them, though. I mean, I, you know, but it's just that's not my thing. That was author Imani Perry talking about her books, May We Forever Stand, A History of the Black National Anthem, and Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, respectively published by the University of North Carolina Press and Beacon Press in 2018. Imani Perry's interview was recorded during BIO's May 2019 conference held in the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. You can read more about BIO on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palmer created our theme music, and until next time, thanks for listening, and have a great day. Thank you.